Welcome to episode 180 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm Markham Hislop, energy and climate journalist and publisher of Energy Media. And today I'm going to be talking to Justin Locke, who's the managing director of Rocky Mountain Institute's Global South program. We were going to talk about the energy transition and what's going on in the global south. Uh, so welcome to the interview, Justin. Thank you, Markham. Happy to be here and talk about this very, very exciting topic. Well, I tell you, my entry into this conversation is the many discussions I've had with oil and gas supporters who, as part of their argument, their counter argument to peak oil demand, peak gas demand and, and eventual decline, say that, well, yeah, sure, it, of course it's going to peak because electric uh, transportation, for instance, uh, will catch on in, in North America. It's already caught on in, in Europe. And but that's going to be offset by growth in the developing countries and the and primarily the, the global south and they will stick with the old technologies and to me that sounds it's counterintuitive because we know what happened uh it, with uh, telecom communication instead of adopting landlines and all of the centralized technology everybody just went to cell phones and it seems like this is a, likely to be a repeat of that but I don't, it, while that, that seems to be the intuitive response, I thought I would talk to you and find out if that is actually a reasonable, if that's what's happening there and likely to happen in the future. So that's how I got into this. Uh, maybe you, we could start with a little overview of your take on the energy transition and the global south. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great question. One, I think many in our space are shifting to the focus on the global south where is where you're going to see all the growth so i mean just top line numbers in terms of what's forecasted you know i, I think as you pointed out markets in the global north uh oil and gas markets are expected to decrease and that's that's indicative of all the oil and gas majors models right as with the passing of the inflation reduction act in the united states uh measures by the government of china measurement you know what we're seeing in europe we're, we're expecting significant and accelerated uh, transition to clean energy technologies in the global south, but in the in the it's sorry in the global north in the global south, it's it, it, at least the modeling is the opposite where we're expecting a 44% increase in emissions um, by the end of the decade, and 70% of all emissions will be centered in the global south by 2050. Uh, that's due in part because of just the growth that we're seeing obviously in markets like India. Uh, Southeast Asia, uh, in in Africa, you're, we're expecting a, a billion more Africans to join um, to, to 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 enter into the continent um, in the next 15 years. So you're gonna see a huge increase and a huge spike in demand in the global south. The question is obviously is, is how is that going to be met, right? How is that how is that energy demand going to be met? Obviously, we've laid out a vision that that should be primarily met with clean energy technologies, as you rightly pointed out, a leapfrog moving from 20th century technologies to 21st century technologies. But we are battling, you know, um, things like the political economy and significant subsidization and other strategies where the oil and gas majors, their their new market and their growth, their growth or, or projected growth is in the global south, primarily in the form of natural gas. Um, and obviously that's uh, in, a, in large part concentrated in the industrial sectors as manufacturing uh, and industrial development continues to move to the global south, as we've seen in Southeast Asia, as incomes have risen and moved into Southeast Asia and 
and also as Africa is industrialized as well. Now, one of the points that, uh, and I should mention that, uh, again, my entry into this conversation is through a document that Kingsmill Bond, a friend of mine and someone we've uh, interviewed many times in the podcast. In fact, when I talked to your folks in the media department, I said, please don't you know, get me somebody to talk to, but not Kingsmill. Right, right. We talked. We talked to each other so much that we, you know, we let's let, let me talk to somebody different this time. So, um, but he wrote a document. He and his colleagues, I guess, wrote a document about renewables revolution. And one of the points in there that I uh, I think is very interesting is that China is the leader of the new renewable revolution. They have they have spent the last twenty years basically building the industrial capacity to supply the technology that is the underpinning of the renewable revolution. So they 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 build most of this, the solar panels and the wind turbines and the batteries and the electric vehicles and on and on and on. It seems to me that China must be looking at the global south and uh, as a place where it can exert its leadership and that it would move into those markets as a way of expanding and and this and, and also its geopolitical leadership. Uh, and with industry and and economic growth, uh, and with capital, it's it's capital leading the way. Is that like happening or likely to happen? I mean, it already is happening for in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you're seeing China exert its influence in the Indo-Pacific, um, in the Caribbean, in Africa, both in terms of its exerting its geopolitical power to gain influence and control in you know. In international forums, but also as you know, as and as tensions have risen, I mean, what we're seeing is is a fight for the new economy, which is really around precious metals that will generate the the, the um, you know the tools, the the um, the capabilities to drive the, the clean energy transition, the form of you know bad you know the inputs into battery energy storage, for example, into um, into solar panels. Um, into electric vehicles, most of the components and inputs into these materials uh, are precious metals that are found in global, the global south. You take, uh, for example, Indonesia, that has nearly 40% um, of all the world's nickel supply. And so you're already seeing the geopolitical position. And really, the, what you're seeing is an expression of the, the increase in tension between the West and China is, is really a fight for these new resources. Well, goodness, it sounds like uh, like the fifties, you know, where the uh, the U.S. was flexing its muscle all through Latin America and and basically protecting its its markets uh, in its own backyard. Uh, so here, we're, once again, uh, we've got geopolitical competition for uh, resources for a new economy, for a new industrial revolution, and markets for a new industrial revolution. And and so, but, and I would assume at some point that the Americans and the Europeans will get themselves sorted out and build that industrial capacity. So they'll be looking for new markets as well and wanting to counter China in, in the global South. Uh, but doesn't that argue then against the incumbency of, of fossil fuels in the global South with China I mean, taking you, such an aggressive role? I mean, you would think so. You would think so. But what we're seeing again is all the oil and gas majors see the new market in the global south, and particularly in the form of natural gas. Um, and in absence of strong 
um, institutions, what you see is the political economy often winning out where where the e where the economics are clear in the other direction. Um, we see this debate clearly in natural gas, where you find countries that should be investing in natural gas, countries like Vietnam for their industrial development, are not because you're reducing the number of suppliers and making yourself more vulnerable to global energy markets. And we saw that obviously uh, when Russia gas came offline. Uh, so you're, And so you're seeing energy security being paramount. At the same time, you're seeing countries like small countries in the Caribbean invest fully into natural gas where the economics are not clear at all. That's because the argument around the role of natural gas, uh, particularly in the global south markets, is very tribal, where you have a subset of um, petrostates uh, supported, obviously, by narratives driven driven by uh, global global north um, oil and gas majors, uh, influencing the dialogue, tapping into colonial colonial orientated arguments, uh, and on the opposite side, you have the international community saying you know, public resources in the form of climate finance cannot be leveraged or utilized to invest in natural gas in any circumstance. Um, where we're trying to find is that there's somewhere in the middle where natural gas and, and for other fossil fuels will have a specific role to play in certain markets and in certain industrial applications. But in absence of that more clear nuanced understanding and narrative of the role of fossil fuels in the future, what we find ourselves is in the political economy is driving these decisions, uh, which only you know um, supports the intentions of certain petrostates and the oil and gas majors. Yeah, I, I can understand why the uh, some of these the global south countries would be interested in in natural gas. And how often do we talk about you know the power? The power sector and transportation are going to electrify. The power sector is going to switch to uh, to renewables and and uh, the new those new clean energy technologies, and then we're going to see transportation be electrified. But it'll be buildings and industry that are considered hard to abate sectors, and so you could see where countries that want to that want to uh, industrialize say, look, uh, right now the dominant technology or the dominant uh, energy, the fuel used for the industries that we want to develop are natural gas. And therefore, that's what we're going to use now because we don't want to delay it or maybe the, you know, the electric options aren't available or whatever the, the, they are. And then, of course, just as you say, you know, the, the petrostates and the, and the uh, northern oil and gas majors uh, controlling the, the narrative. So I, I can see where that uh where that might take place um, on transportation, though, if and and on the power sector, if I'm looking at these, I mean, this, as you point out, or as it pointed out in the in, in Rocky Mountain Institute report, the South has tremendous renewable resources, particularly around solar. And so, if you were looking at electrifying like rural areas, then solar plus battery plus microgrids. Has got to be a winning condition, uh, a winning combination. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to off-grid electrification, um, we've proven and and it's well understood that um, microgrids or mini grids in the form of solar plus battery energy storage is much more economical than extending the grid hundreds of miles to remote communities. Um, the question is, 
is, you know, what role do electric vehicles, particularly in, in two and three wheel electrification play to support that? Um, you know, rural electrification is a bigger challenge than just providing electricity to communities, right? There's an element of what we refer to as productive use. You need an economic activity to, to, that requires that form of electricity that generates income for a specific community that then enables it to be electrified in a sustainable way. Uh, for example, in Africa, where you have 600 million people without energy access, there's you know close to 800 million globally without energy access, and then another billion people with intermittent energy access. Agriculture is the dominant uh, economic activity. Um, and when you tie that to, to electrification, you look at, okay, what are the agricultural products coming into a community? Uh, how are they being refined, mostly in the form of milling? And where do you have adequate volumes to electrify those mills as a, as a kind of a, uh, a foundation of electrifying that community? We're also exploring uh, the role that two and three wheelers, which is the predominant uh, form of transportation in these communities, how does that play a role if we electrify those two and three wheelers? How does that play a significant role um, in actually providing the baseline um, electricity demand for a community? And then you extrapolate that obviously to urban markets where, you know, um, um, air quality is a significant issue, not only health, but economic, right? Uh, and electrifying two and three wheels makes complete sense. I think as we start to transition into, you know, other vehicle segments, particularly, you know, midsize and, you know, trucks and, and some of the larger trucks, the economics get less clear. And obviously that's, that's a big part of where the emissions are, um, but the economics fully aren't there yet. I think what we're trying to do is look at this system holistically, where you don't decouple vehicle electrification from, you know, transitioning to, to, to clean, sustainable grids. We have to look at them in an integrated way. And unfortunately, we're stuck in this messy phase where the electricity grids are predominantly driven by fossil fuels. Um, and and what we're finding in the global south, too, is that, that you know, most of people's electricity needs are not being met by the, the electrical grids. Take, for example, Vietnam right now. There's a, there is a historical drought in the north or sorry, the south of China, the north of Vietnam, that is is um, taken offline all their their hydro also all their hydropower, which is about five gigawatts, twenty percent of their entire electricity system. And what what does that mean? I mean, they're cutting their industrial um, generation or and and load by fifty percent. That means their industrial capacity is at fifty percent right now. Um, so they need to significantly increase their their um, electricity generation before they can even think about wholesale uh, electrical uh, uh, electrification of, of vehicles because that's going to require more demand of electricity. So you you have to solve multiple problems with an integrated and holistic solution, and that's what we're trying to bring. And I think it's been somewhat of a challenge in that these are um, grid operators, policymakers that have really built their whole. Um, psychological paradigm around fossil fuels. So thinking more holistically is um, in terms of the integration of these different sectors um, is a bit of a jump. And that, but again, we're making significant traction um, through our work on the ground. Is now, if you look at the cost curves on the primary technologies that are 
that underpin the the energy transition. Um, while they're more efficient and while they're now lower cost than their uh, fossil fuel based uh, 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 alternatives, um, they're not done yet. You know, solar is, uh, costs are still dropping. Battery costs are set to go to drop considerably in the next decade. <clears throat> and on top of that, uh, to improve, we have all sorts of different chemistries and and uh, all sorts of uh, niche batteries like zinc ion for stationary storage, that sort of thing. And might it be the case that this messy period that the global south in, is in right now becomes less messy as time goes on and the economic advantage of the new uh the new energy technologies becomes more obvious and the costs become lower and lower and lower yeah i mean in a, in large part i mean the economics are really clear obviously part of it is scale right is is bringing more aggregated demand in terms of you know bankable portfolio to the market um to make things work but the, the bigger the issue why this we're in this messy phase and and you don't see the adoption of clean energy technologies like the economics would suggest is is not because of the technologies the availability of those technologies and at times even the supply chain it's the broader ecosystem in developing country contexts that prevent not only clean energy investment but other forms of investment and as we look we look at that in terms of the the from a clean energy perspective i mean you have broken utility systems and grid infrastructure you have the predominant ownership modality of utilities in electric utilities in the global south is state-owned and every single state-owned utility in the global south is either insolvent or bordering on insolvency so they don't have access to liquidity and they don't have proper um proper credit you see very complex political environments um, you see compounding debt crisis and macroeconomic risks, um, and you see the very finite amount of public financial instruments that are specifically designed to address the risks in these markets to allow private sector investment to, 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 um, to be catalyzed is not being deployed properly, which is why you have so much focus these days on MDB reform to be fit for purpose. So again, what, what, RMI is doing and, and our partner ecosystem is actually trying to address the broader risks in these markets that are preventing private sector fi financing from, from scaling rather than working on bringing down the cost curve of these technologies because it's the, the, the economics for 90% you know, of geographies that, that we work in across the global south are already clear. It's the broader investment ecosystem and environment that, that needs to be addressed so that the private sector, particularly, you know, commercial finance, you know, global commercial financiers feel comfortable. And that's the key word, comfortable um, investing in these markets, because often there is more perceived risk than real risk. Now, the, the kind of issues that we're talking about here, the, the both political and economic that are holding back development in the global south are not new. These issues have been around for a long time. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the thing that has changed here is the commitment uh, amongst Nash, uh, amongst you know the international community uh, around climate, and so whereas before there the global South 
was a, you know, I don't know how much of a priority it is. I don't know much enough about that to say, but it seems that maybe now we have, we have mechanisms, uh, we have capital, we have other uh, political pressure on and on and on to a begin to help the global south address these issues in a way we didn't have before would that be a fair comment to make? i mean i i think so right i mean as you said right i mean um you know uh volatile markets political uncertainty um obviously high rates of poverty have always been indicative of the global south that's prevented all different forms of investment where you're talking about education health road infrastructure etc which is why um you have a number of institutions focusing on this effort. I will say that you know development has worked. You, you see a lot of countries graduating, at least developed into into the middle income. I think the recent urgency that you see is twofold. One, you know, we live on one planet, right? And so the uh, the global north can't decarbonize and allow the global south, you know, to be either the dumping ground of 20, 20th century technologies or you know the, the 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 center of significant oil and gas investments uh, taking advantage of the lack of uh, you know strong institutions to allow the political economy to win. But the other element is that is migration, right? I mean, it, it's not talked about as much, I think, in the North American context uh, because it's been overly politicized. But in Europe, this is a very open and mature conversation. I mean, the significant amount of inve European investment in Africa, uh, particularly around clean energy as a conduit uh, to other sectors like health, like education, like workforce development and jobs, is seen as a centerpiece, uh, primarily because of the migration issues that you're seeing. Um, we're seeing the same thing here in, in the United States and in Canada, where you know Central America is in the midst of one of the most historic droughts in human history, which is causing those population pressures to, to, to pile up at the border. Um, but rather than, you know, systematically addressing that through, you know, um, income generating activities, poverty alleviation, clean energy development as a, as a conduit to all those things, uh, we tend to be focusing on the band-aids at the border. Um, so I think this is why you're seeing a, a, a much more significant uh, focus here, coupled with the huge private sector investment potential, the Global South. I think, I think we estimated th the Global South needs around $30 trillion of investment um, by 2030 in order to meet you know, net zero goals. I mean, that's a huge, huge market of opportunity. So I think all those things are combining to really focus couple, I mean, paired with the numbers I mentioned, right? I mean, as the Global North decarbonizes, the Global South is going to increase their emissions by 44% in aggregate. By, by 2050, 70% of all global emissions will be centered in the Global South. So we, we're all, this is a, these are red, this is, these are not yellow blinking lights anymore, right? These are red blinking lights. And I think you're starting to see uh, the international community, the Global North, and in partnership with the Global South, really galvanize around real reform and change, starting with the Bretton Woods system um, to, 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 to be more strategic with how public sector investments are made in order to catalyze that infinite amount of private sector investment on the sideline. Well, follow the money, they say. <laughs> exactly. Right. And uh, so if there's a focus on deploying capital, if there are opportunities for deploying capital in the global South, then 
my guess is that you're going to see, uh, you know, people like Mark Carney and and uh, BlackRock and exert pressure on the international community to fix some of the problems in the global south from their point of view, uh, yeah. so that their cap essentially de-risk their capital investments. Exactly. Uh, but the, exactly. And the, yeah, and in the process of doing that, fix some of these institutional problems and, and political economic problems that have been holding back uh, investment and development up to now. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I mean, and that's why, I mean, that's kind of the, the hidden narrative that you're seeing behind the scenes, right? Beyond climate is is really the push towards the Bretton Woods reform, which is the multilateral development banks and the way they operate, the way they deploy capital, ensuring that it's fit for purpose to allow, again, to address not only the macroeconomic, but even uh, portfolio and project related risks to allow private sector investment to come and, and de-risk their capital. I will say though that there's been a lot of focus on the back end on, on de-risking capital. Whereas where we see on the front end is the fact that there's, there's simply a lack of bankable projects. So bankable projects are projects that are well thought through, that they've done their proper pre-feasibility and feasibility studies that are considered financeable. Right now in the Global South, there's very thin uh, amount of these projects, uh, which means that number of different financing entities are competing for the very few bankable projects, which is just driving down the cost of capital and actually pushing out private capital because the MDBs the multilateral development banks are actually competing for that those projects with the private sector. So what we're trying to do is actually address that by um, creating portfolios of bankable projects and bringing those to the market. Well, let's talk about bankable projects because 30 years ago, when I was living in Saskatchewan, I spent some time working in community economic development and and uh, with the, the First Nation community there. Right. And at that time, uh, I think it would be safe to say we didn't think in those terms, but I think you could you could make the comparison that there was a lack of ba bankable projects for First Nation communities in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk 30 years ago about uh, and this is while my experience is in Saskatchewan, I think this is true for much of the, the indigenous population across Canada, which would be about 600,000 people and uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, indigenous nations. But the the point I'm going to make here is that 30 years ago, the conversation was around building capacity. Yeah. Right. So you had to have in order to build capacity, you had to have institutions like you had to have development corporations. You had to have managerial skill to run those. You often, you know, they would uh, joint venture with existing you know, trucking companies or mining companies or whatever it would be so that they would their their members would learn. And they and then they would take those lessons and they would and they would they would teach you know other members of the community how to be managers and they would they would go off to you know get the the training uh, the education that they needed and and over time now what you see uh, like in British Columbia for instance where where I live is uh, the indigenous nations have become so adept at doing solar. Uh, and to so, and some extent, um, uh, run of river and and some other clean energy projects, but particularly solar. That now, as the uh, provincially owned uh, electric utility BC Hydro uh, is 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 now forecasting two percent growth again for the next you know twenty years, uh, and it can't build any more hydro dams. It's looking to the indigenous communities 
to build solar and on other forms of clean energy in order at which they will then enter into purchase power purchase agreements. You, yeah. you couldn't have, you couldn't have done that 30 years ago. If they if the capacity had not been built at the local level to to manage projects, to build and conceive of pro to conceive of projects, manage the projects and build the projects, you 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 what we see today would would not be possible. And I wonder if that's analogous to what's going on in the global south. Yeah, I mean, one, that's a great story, right? And it's unfortunate that 30 years later, that capacity is still not built because, you know, many organizations that operate in the Global South, including ours, right? I mean, we have a whole program designed around developing the clean energy workforce of the future in the Global South. Um, and many organizations, you know, say that they're doing capacity building, but predominantly it's been a fly-in, fly-out model, you know, Global North, you know, providing kind of workshops for the Global South participants and saying, here's how we did it, you can do it too, rather than building up really an indigenous uh, workforce and, and really indigenous examples within the Global South of utilities, you know, regulators, policymakers that have done this and really elevate them, give them the platform so they become the educators. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a big part of the barrier right now. I mean, we see from our work in the Caribbean, they're much more advanced. Uh, than, say, Southeast Asia grid operators in, in incorporating intermittent renewables. Uh, you, you often find that the communities that have to become the most adept at doing something, right? Whereas, you know, um, many fossil fuel or petro states in, in, in the global south, you know, they haven't learned these skills or because they haven't really, really needed to. I will say, I mean, in addition to capacity, which, as you said, is, is frankly, I think, the biggest uh, gap. In, in the global south when it comes to why more bankable projects aren't coming to the market. There is an issue of just access to liquidity. You know, it, it costs money to develop a, a clean energy project. You have to do feasibility studies. You have to do grid interconnection. You have to understand the soil composition, hydrology. You have to acquire land, right, uh, in order for these things to happen. And and frankly, most, most utilities and, and energy practitioners in the global south are, are just frantic trying to keep the lights on because there's been such large growth. So, and, and at the same time, you know, access to project development capital is just, it, it's prohibitively expensive. And, and so that's an area where, you know, we think that, um, you know, the international community can pay more attention as opposed to just focusing on de-risking the cost of capital and, and addressing those, those macroeconomic risks is really addressing you know, the capacity gap and, and providing a little bit more support to the project development cycle so that, you know, more projects are, are getting to the market. Is there a danger if the international community doesn't help in the right way, doesn't support the Global South in the right way, that essentially uh, all you do is replicate the petrostate model, uh, but instead this time now it's with uh, electricity, uh, elect you know, it's it's clean energy kind of model. So, the you know, they, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, investor-owned utilities move in, they invest and they bring in their own, they, they bring in their own staff and, and you know, and, and the local people are hired as janitors and truck drivers and things, but there there isn't a... a there isn't a sense that any kind of investment there is a means of building capacity and transferring skills and then supporting the growth of local institutions, local local businesses, local you know local uh, investment capabilities. Uh, it, it, I don't know is is that a, is that a, a risk? 
I mean, that's what happened during the 70s and 80s, right? Predominantly driven by an organization I used to work for, right, with the World Bank in terms of its approaches of privatization, particularly of, you know, national utilities, water, you know, electricity, et cetera, right? And you see that across Latin America, some of the impacts of that. What we've seen actually more recently is a trend in the opposite direction, is more of a nationalistic view of, uh, you know, national assets, particularly electric utilities, where you see much more um, public sector buyouts of utilities. Uh, we've seen that uh, firsthand. Um, and again, you know, the predominant amount, I mean, it's, it's, it's upwards of 90% of, of electric utilities in the Global South are actually um, government owned, right? They are national utilities. I think the, the issue is that th those utilities have become overly bureaucratic. They lack obviously liquidity. The policy environment that they've been operating in um, hasn't, you know, where, whether they be subsidizing or or or, or whatever, um, and you know, the primary metric for success of those companies has really been around employment and not around, um, you know, return to shareholders. So you've seen an eroding of the public electricity infrastructure over time, you know, and as part of that. Um, you know, we haven't seen the capacity built in electric utilities like we we have liked, partly because, and this is my last point, is that the international community is mostly focused on the policy and regulatory framework as a conduit to opening up these markets, as opposed to, you know, really addressing and focusing on the utility and the regulator to build their capacity and providing the necessary financial instruments to support them during that transition. You know, earlier in this conversation, we began talking about this. I was thinking, well, you know, maybe climate policy and the drive to reduce emissions uh, in the global south will will bring in expertise, will bring in investment by by you know, uh, investor-owned utilities, whatever it might be, private companies, uh, that sort of thing. But as we've been been talking, it occurs to me that really, uh, maybe what's required is. Uh, yes, continue to decarbonize. That's great because we, we're in a climate crisis and we're beginning to see uh, the effects of that. But to make this really work for the global south, the the hard work, the thankless work, the 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 work that doesn't have a return to it, not a visible return of building capacity, is maybe a prerequisite for building out clean energy, uh, clean energy systems and developing a clean energy industry and, and economy. I, your, your thoughts on that? I mean, Mark, I, I couldn't have said it better, right? I mean, I think that hard work in the trenches, as you outlined, is what really needs to happen right now. And unfortunately, you know, oftentimes in the international community, we like to have, you know, easy wins or, or low hanging fruit, as we say, or, you know, quick wins or, you know, there's a lot of focus on kind of silver bullet solutions as opposed to really the hard work in the trenches that needs to get done is really reforming these utilities, uh, restructuring their debt, using using the, the instruments that um, the IMF and the World Bank have utilized to restructure economies is actually you restructure the economy through restructuring the utility to enable the energy transition to happen, which is obviously, you know, you know, what we've been talking about is the conduit for broader uh, prosperity within these countries. And again, that's was exactly what's required at this state. And and also the Global South countries coming together and learning from each other and not always being this Global North, Global South divide, because, you know, I think probably something that you've seen in your work with Indigenous communities in, in, in Canada is that 
people learn best from people who share the same problems, who often are from the same communities or or look or talk like them. And I think, um, you know, that's always the best conduit for getting someone to really buy into something. Yeah, sure. Fair enough. And uh, it, it just, it seems like that for a period of time, you know, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, who knows, but that it's likely that the, uh, you know, the global North oil and gas companies are going to find ready markets for their natural gas in, in the global South. Uh, particularly if those countries want to industrialize in a hurry. And maybe that can't be avoided. But long-term, they're going to want to switch to the the better, cheaper, more efficient clean energy technologies. And maybe the best strategy here is just to say, okay, there's only so much we can do in terms of keeping out natural gas. But if we build the local capacity, and then eventually the capacity be, will be there to build out the competitive system, that eventually displaces gas or, and oil and and hope and coal, whatever it might be. I what your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's part of it, right? I mean, I think there is, I mean, distributed clean energy developing and running and regulating a decentralized clean energy market is very different than a centralized fossil fuel market, which is why you haven't seen that shift. Um, the concern is that you double down on that model, even if it's a cleaner fuel like natural, natural gas, that you continue those constructs, whether they be financial, whether they be by experience, whether they be content. And, and that only prolongs the, the inevitable transition. And so what we think needs to happen is really getting really crystal, crystal clear where natural gas has a role to play. Obviously, there are certain industrial sectors that uh, until green hydrogen is 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 fully commercialized, just you know natural gas just makes the most sense. Or you know deep you know very deep uh, urban environments, right, where just the the density of energy demands can't be met by renewables. They can be complemented by renewables, and I think that's the key here. Is that there? It's not an either or. It's it's a it's a it's an and and right. And so how do you do? How do you continue to deploy fossil fuels strategically while building out a complementary set of, of renewable energy investments to complement that, that simply overtake the grid over time, right? Because they become less, they, they're much less expensive and they can, uh, and as, obviously as that cost curve continues to come down, which we've seen, you know, both with batteries and wind and, and, and solar, it just simply overtakes. I think the biggest concern we have is, you know, when you make a natural gas investment, that's a 30-year investment. And and the and the and the 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 kind of narrative within the political economy is that it's a bridge fuel. Well, you know, a thirty-year bridge is not much of a bridge. I mean, that's three decades. And so I think part of it is narrative. Part of it is making sure that we have balanced views and and are really understanding the role of these technologies and what they can play, rather than the and/or strategy, because that's a losing strategy. Well, let's end our conversation, uh, Justin, by pulling back to my original question about will the global South be this, uh, you know, burgeoning market for oil and gas that the uh, oil and gas advocates uh, think it will be? Uh, we know from this conversation, I think that it that for certainly on the gas side, there's going to be a big emphasis on that. But but is this is the global South going to be the thing that the market that sustains the the oil and gas industry as 
the North American and the European markets shrink and eventually China mar Chinese uh, market shrinks. Uh, is that going to be the salvation of of what of the the majors and the and the you know basically the global uh, oil markets and gas markets? I mean, we're certainly hope not, right? I mean, over the five to seven years, that that will really be the determining factor of whether that 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 case that you just outlined or that argument that you just outlined comes to fruition or not. I think personally, if you know, it's going to be patchy. It's going to be it's you're going to see traction in certain markets that. Um, whether they be because of the economics or because of the political economy, there's just, you know, the, the oil and gas majors are going to have significant share of that market. There's going to be other markets that take a more progressive view, and we can already start to see the, the kind of uh, first indicators of that, right? The markets that are moving quite more, more slowly or really more thoughtfully. Um, you look at, you know, Latin America, for example, that has really embraced clean energy in a lot of ways. Obviously, the, the agricultural sectors where you still have some issues. Um, you know, I think Africa is going to be a mixed bag, and and that's that's where we really hope that we can make some significant traction. But a big part of it is really going to come down to what direction is Southeast Asia going to go, and what what direction is is, is India going to go? Um, right now, India may be taking some steps that um, some good steps and not some good steps, and that we are a bit concerned about that market. Uh, I think Southeast Asia. I think. It really hasn't been, you know, it really has not been shown yet what direction that region is going to go. They are delaying natural gas investments, right? You've seen huge natural gas investments in their pipeline, and those deals are falling through, and they're starting to get more risks associated with those investments. And so, you know, the question is, they just continue to rely on coal and double down on coal, um, but they are being much more thoughtful and pragmatic. And in some ways, it's actually stalling them from doing anything. Um, but obviously, you know, we hope that's a market that capitalizes on this huge growth that they've had as manufacturing has moved into the region from China to capture that low labor because they, they need to have energy, secure energy, and they need to have low cost energy as manufacturing automizes, right? And so, you know, that's, that's the winning narrative. And so the direction they go there, I think will be critical, not only for the region, but really for global climate. Well, Justin, thank you very much. You, you've certainly clarified some things for me uh, about the Global South and the trends that are going on there and and the role that it's going to play in sustaining or maybe not sustaining the uh, the global oil and gas uh, economy. So thank you very much for this. Really appreciate your insights. Mark, it was a pleasure to be with you.